Welcome to Books at Work, the best and most useful bits of business books. I'm Anna Hughes and my professional purpose is to help people love their work. In New Zealand, 2023 has started with a bit of a climate change wake-up call that's seen many communities hit by and reeling from weather-related disasters. How do organisations, businesses and leaders pick up the pieces when disaster hits and communities try to recover? This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I do hope that this episode's book, When the Dust Settles, provides a bit of a perspective to reflect on and use in the months ahead for those who are recovering from a disaster, and for those of us around the world reviewing or updating our disaster response and recovery plans and approaches. Something like flooding is so chronic and awful and miserable to go through and so actually linked to sort of other fears because very rarely does an area flood and you get to tell them you'll never flood again. So basically you're returning people to a state where they are then just living for the inevitable in the future. And there's no question that you know our environment as it changes and, and as it adapts, these are the sorts of things that so many communities will come to terms with. That's the voice of Lucy Easthope, author of When the Dust Settles, stories of love, loss and hope from an expert in disaster. Lucy shares stories from 9-11, the Boxing Day tsunami, the Ukraine air crash and the Bali bombings. She's seen everything from nuclear incidents, chemical attacks, pandemics, food and fuel shortages, train and plane crashes, volcanoes and tsunamis. This book is full of good yarns, all based in real life and tragedy. Our speed read focuses on parts of the book to provide useful and practical insights for our workplaces and organisations for communities hit by weather events. Lucy says in the book that she tries to take the affected community a step further and ask what they need to face in a post-disaster future with assurance. She says often the recovery needs very different resources and approaches from the response. And she's been around the world to study what works and what heaps further harm onto the initial disaster. She paints a picture of flooding that many of us here in New Zealand will recognise and have seen in different communities during 2023. Here's her description. One of the things that always takes people by surprise is the speed of the water's ingress. The destruction is usually fast. She tells the story of her hometown, Doncaster, being hit by flooding in 2007. Over 3,000 homes were flooded and more than 2,000 suffered major damage. Evacuations were terrifying, people were without clothing, pets were missing. That was when she first learnt about recovery listening, which mostly involved just staying silent. These floods focused Lucy on the chronic aftermath of disaster and illustrates perfectly the three waves of activity in a disaster. 1. Planning, which we all hope never needs to see the light of day. 2. The immediate response and stabilisation. And 3. The much longer term recovering. This is the bit that gets so little attention, according to Lucy. She observes that the extent of physical damage from flooding and financial complications can leave a family living in suspended or temporary lodging for 18 to 24 months. For most people, their home is situated within a network of other homes, shops and parks. And when a family has to move to temporary accommodation elsewhere, they have usually lost everything or almost everything from their lives, including the loss of a sense of home, safety at home, of cosiness, as well as physical objects. This continues when they return. She says many people stop using the word home. 
Lucy says disaster survivors face a steady chain of losses, including a loss of privacy. The things we own make up what sociologists call furniture of self. They are part of what makes us us, and their loss can be felt as keenly as that of a loss of people and places. She says disasters are about total loss, tangible losses of a feeling of safety, trust and authority, and the mourning of the life before. So how do we use these insights in our workplaces? First, understanding this context has to be a good start. Let's talk to Lucy now and get her insights to help us as we work through future disaster recovery. I'm really delighted to welcome to Books at Work, Lucy Easthope, uh, all the way from the UK. Hi Lucy, how are you this morning? Hello, I'm very good, thank you for having me. I'm really pleased we've got you on, particularly given everything that's going on in New Zealand at the moment. Uh, we start every Books at Work conversation with the same question, which is, where in the world are you and what's the view out your window today? Oh, so I'm in a county in England called Shropshire. Uh, which is very near Wales and also quite close to where I grew up, which is very important to me in uh, Liverpool and Chester. And out of the window is my garden and it's frosty here this morning. Uh, so I've remembered to feed the birds. So I'm looking at the birds out of the window at the moment. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Well, let's rip right into it. Um, I want to first uh, say first up what a damn good read this book is. It's such a good read uh, like there's so many Thank ripping you. yarns in there and your life and your expertise you've experienced so much it's amazing and you've written it really well so thank you for that um it's also a really sobering book and just wondering how you personally cope with being so close to so many disasters and how how you how you cope with that Oh, that, that's very kind of you. I remember when the book first came out and I gave a copy to my dad and he said, you know, he'd expected to read it dutifully. And he said to me, I didn't expect a page turner. <laughs> it <laughs> is. is. Praise indeed from him. You know? um, and I think one of the things about, about going to some of the more difficult places in the book was, uh, and some really, really difficult memories and imagery, was that I wanted people to understand that this wasn't a sort of shallow surface level, oh, you know, keep going, life gets better tomorrow. You had to understand how difficult some of these situations are. I think one of the things that is always very, very front and centre of my mind is I'm I'm adjacent to the thing, you know, whatever's happening um, sometimes it comes close to home, but generally whatever's happening is happening to somebody that I'm there to support and to remember that. There's a line at the first chapter that says the hardest part of working in disaster is going home. And that's the line that so many colleagues within about a week of the book being released had photographed and sent to me and said that's that's the line. You know, The work is exciting. It's a privilege. It's interesting. But the demob is very, very hard. So really keen to tap into your expertise, particularly given what's going on in New Zealand at the moment. You're described as one of UK's top advisors on disaster recovery. What is disaster recovery exactly? And and how can it help communities, businesses and individuals? Well, it's always really interesting for me talking to, to New Zealand about this because <laughs> England has spent years plagiarising you. You know, you right. write some of the best recovery and response guidance in the world. And for, for decades, um, New Zealand has been at the forefront of thinking about how communities come back from these things. And 
And it's interesting. I think one of the things that's happened with what you've gone through um, with the slips and the flooding and the rain recently is that coming on top of the, the pandemic, you are the same as everywhere else, which is seeing a massive amount of sort of post-disaster fatigue and exhaustion. But one thing I would say is, you know, New Zealand mustn't forget where it stands in terms of its heart. It, it knows all this information. So one piece of guidance that we use religiously in the UK is written by the New Zealand Red Cross, and it's called Leading in Disaster Recovery, a Companion Through the Chaos. And so I've been quite surprised sometimes with some of the coverage that there has been so much soul searching and reflection of kind of what do we do next? And that's really focused my mind on maybe that's part of the human condition. <laughs> right. Maybe all countries are condemned to forget the amazing resources on the shelf. But to go back a bit, you know, disaster recovering is the idea, I suppose. And, and you know, the, the word recovery is hugely challenging, I think, because it's uh, it, it implies an endpoint and a sort of process. But the idea of the sort of work that I do is there are some things you can do in the longer stages of, of the responding that uh, make a difference to how communities come back from this and ways that you can think. You have a chapter kind of dedicated to flooding, which also talks about the Christchurch earthquakes, which I thought was lovely. Uh, so there was some flooding in Doncaster in the UK. And I was just wondering if we could could talk about that a little bit. Just wondering how long you spent with those communities during that recovery period as those communities came back from that flooding. Something like flooding is so chronic and awful and miserable to go through and so actually linked to sort of other fears because very rarely does an area flood and you get to tell them you'll never flood again so basically you're returning people to a state where they are then just living for the inevitable in the future and there's no question that you know our environment as it changes and, and as it adapts these are the sorts of things that so many communities will come to terms with probably one of the most common recoveries I get called into is flooding and generally I'll go back uh, you know, I sort of stay in touch sometimes with the community, sometimes because physically they're so closely located. And I was actually living in Doncaster at the time of the 2007 floods. And so this this was happening all around my home. So one of the things that I address, actually, it, it became my PhD thesis, was both um, living there and visiting there as a responder, but also visiting there as a researcher and just keep and just, you know, kept going back really for for, um, you know, I've still been back, but the close relationship was about seven years. And that's not unusual in in flood flood recovery um because the other thing that happens is the place floods again <laughs> so you end up with these kind of concurrent um missions essentially where you're going back and forth and what it really brought home to me and i really wanted to convey in that chapter is the hard work and the emotional labor of doing disaster recovery you know so well expressed in the leading in disaster recovery guidance that this is you know as they say they're not a sprint not a marathon but the hardest kind of endurance event so you would go back and you perhaps you know you'd see somebody who was just yeah the true definition of weariness I think is seen when you walk the streets of a of a, a hit community but of something like that and the other thing that the geographical disasters make us think about is what we call the phases of disaster which is very heavily critiqued in disaster sociology you know you would go from response to recovery in the paperwork but actually um you know how things can be set back how they can ebb and flow 
but also days of positivity. So you would see the day that people could get back into their houses, but that was also a mixed blessing. So you learned that there was no real, there weren't real crescendo days in the aftermath of disaster. And that's something I would really draw out if you're going through flooding or that kind of environmental disaster that's that's generated a situation where you have a temporary relocation, particularly if you're, say, supporting employees through it. It's a very long process and we like to parcel up disaster. That's happened. That was then. But living with things like <clears throat> relocation, refurbishment is very, very enduring, difficult. So are there any things that kind of employee um, employers or work colleagues can do to help people who are going through that relocation, um, that relocation process? Is there any advice or guidance that you you've got for them? Absolutely. You have to fundamentally change your mindset that this is parceled off. And that's also true, obviously, with things like the pandemic. You you, you have to, for example, often as employers prioritise the needs of the business, managers within that will want to move us forward very quickly to a point where the disaster is forgotten. And so you see, you see very cruel things in sort of performance appraisals after somebody's been flooded, where you know the, the, the boss is, is pointing out that they haven't met their targets. Just seeing this in the round, seeing what it does, um, and also, you know, I, remember, I always remember te you know, teaching or reviewing a, a session uh, in the Humber, a part of our, our country that, that floods a lot. And we were running a session and, and, and floods had literally just happened. And the director of, of what we call sort of social services flew in through the door a bit late and was very apologetic. And it turned out the reason he was late was that he too had been flooded and was living in a family member's back bedroom. And so I think there was this idea that, you know, he, he hadn't even let that on to residents. So, the, you know, the true sense of kind of all being in it together. I think the the other thing is to you know use the recent events that you've gone through to look at your resilience as an organization and and most of that is your people um and you know these events they are sent to try us and they really do but they are also full of uh, moments that we should be learning about so for example we often find smaller businesses are very underinsured you know, look for the lessons don't see it as criticism um, and work with your employees to talk about what this this has meant for all of you so that sounds lovely I think that sounds great in theory but how do you do that in practice when you are going through so much and your community's going through so much to kind of look constructively at lessons and resilience how, how do you do that Oh, it's, it's very difficult. And timing is very, very important in that. You can't hope for coalescence. You know, disasters are very similar to very big other life events like bereavement. You can't look for some kind of complete consensus as to when the time is right. If you are a responder and a recoverer, you will generally always face the accusation that you are moving too soon mm. uh, to, to another place. And you have you have competing priorities. If you've got a small business, and we've definitely seen this in the pandemic, if you've got a small business, a priority is going to be putting food on your family's table. So you have to kind of move with this. One question I often think, and I'm, I'm, I'm working on, you know, some some incidents at the moment where they're very much closer linked to climate adaptation than probably UK responders want to admit. And what I feel 
feel like is happening is that as we respond to them and, and, and then try and recover from them, we're making climate policy as we go. So what we are starting to see, and New Zealand will be the same, is what you decide for your workforce or your community now, you're essentially setting the precedent to how you will adapt to all future disasters and events. And I think at central government level, that requires some discussion. You know, what, what does disaster recovery look like in the future? What is its aims and objectives? I think one of the things that I've always noticed um, is that New Zealand, quite quite understandably, does tend to struggle when things get nasty, whereas mm -hmm. Britain, I think, is much more prepared. It's quite cynical. Uh, and, 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 you know, I address that specifically in the book, the idea of things like the legal aftermath and the questions that will come of leaders. Those questions have to be asked by families and communities. And that's something I think New Zealand could could, uh, you know, could um, face a lot more of in the future. So can we talk a little bit more about that? What what would that involve and how can we how, how can our communities and our people embrace that. I, I follow a lot of New Zealand social media during the floods and the criticism was coming thick and fast and you could see that it was really quite wounding and quite difficult but in Britain we know that that's a, a necessary kind of phase. One of the things that I think the earthquakes in 2010 and 2011 challenged was you know, there's no longer really, I think, the concept, apart from a very few nations that perhaps rely on fatalism and God's will, there's very few nations now that will, will be accepting of any type of accident. And possibly disaster response framing had previously relied on people saying, oh, that's Mother Nature, that's that's Earth, that's, that's geology. Now it's always going to come down to... Um, uh, building control and how things were designed and you're seeing that you know for a very very brief moment commentators in say Turkey last month thought that you know people would see this as as as, as seismic and na nature and God's will and then almost immediately in Turkey attention turned to the building regulations. I want to live in a world that asks difficult questions after disaster because disasters don't highlight new cracks they show up very very blatantly existing problems so disasters do a, a great job i wish we didn't have to have them but they do a great job of holding people to account so one of the things i think uh, that i would be asking leaders and business leaders is about their training for what comes after disaster and that's not the physicality and the cleanup and the you know moving people to rest centers that's understanding where these questions are coming from um and you also what i saw which actually really did shock me in some of your social media was the mistakes being made in responses to, say, Auckland that you have counselled the world against before. So what, what is kind of happening with your corporate memory? You know, it's never too early, I would say, for reflection, for challenge. Your own guidance talks about the role of the wild card, and this is something that I, I go to in the book, which is how difficult it can be on a personal level to be the wild card. <laughs> Nobody really likes challenge. Grown grown adults, high-performing business leaders tend to like somebody to come in and go, you're more amazing than anything I could have imagined. We say we can handle criticism and feedback. We absolutely can't. You know, a lifetime as the disaster wildcard has taught me that. Um, I just did want to pick up something that you just said about training for what it's like after a disaster. And if I think about the corporates and businesses I've been in pre-pandemic, you know, we'd do, we'd do a bit of crisis planning and we'd have a bit of a plan and it uh, wasn't very well formed. We're in much better shape now thanks to the pandemic. 
but I don't remember any decent discussion about the kind of recovery period. You know, are there two or three little tips that you could give us or questions that we should be asking ourselves? I mean, recovery exercises are incredibly hard to run because the thing about a recovery exercise, if you're realistic and I have tried to run ones like this, is you have to stop and start the clock and say things like, you know, it's now three years ahead and there's right. a formal inquiry into the actions of the prime minister, you know, and and the things that I see in disaster aftermath usually, and I call them in the book, the toxic nuggets. So they're often related to kind of incompetency or real shockers, like how can you kick the community in the gut like that? If I build them into an exercise, what I find is that people will fight me in the scenario. I think one of the things is to build the skills of recovery. So David Alexander writes a a good list of those in his book up there, Disaster Recovery, which is about things like empathetic uh, behaviour, listening, the ability to coordinate different agencies, communicate. And these are um, often around skills building in your leadership team or in your workforce so that when the disaster comes, you, you know who would be good to say chair an empathetic meeting. So one of the things I might do in a in a a meeting session is give little uh, puzzle scenarios to the attendees that draw out what the chair might need to do in that. And then we stop the clock again. Um, So it's much more about skills building for me. The other thing is awareness. So hearing from past recoverers about just how difficult this is, making sure so people don't tend to think about recovery until they're in it. So the very least I could do is make, make sure they know where to reach for, for the resources. Things like your corporate behaviour after an incident is very, very relevant um, and, and how things can appear very obfuscating or very arrogant to families particularly. At the end of the book, you say that thanks to COVID, we're all disaster su- survivors. And just wondering what you mean by that. And are there things we can do or learn from that to help us recover from disasters in the future? But I often wondered how people lived through events and then sort of just bookmark them in their lives. And, and you know, obviously there are things like wars and conflict and, and invasion and people had just sort of, you know, compartmentalised that and, and carried on. And I think one of the things that this um, this whole thing has really brought home to me, which was already there in my awareness, but has really come to the fore, is that there probably is an importance to forgetting. It does allow people to move on. And for our children and young people, it does allow us to sort of slightly draw and design new horizons. You know, if we just stayed in our mourning clothes for a, for a long time, we wouldn't m- move forward. And I think there will be a lot of people walking around New Zealand, as there are walking around England at the moment, just trying to pretend that this thing didn't happen, that, that changed so much. And there will also be people that really are struggling with the idea that they don't know how to articulate that maybe it changed life for the better maybe they've there's been some growth or some difference so understanding what this was um putting some coherent narrative around it building back um acknowledging the changes in yourself so many high-performing business people are completely burnt out and trying to pretend that they're not so turning to the back of the New Zealand guidance which is all about self-care and burnout that's where I start and that's not wishy-washy that's not an, an additional thing to perhaps add in at your weekend that's fundamental to rebuild is you start with your own psychosocial health and that would be my strongest message to anybody listening. Now on to the When the Dust Settles, take five. Five things from the book you can use to make work better. 
One, disasters are about total loss of tangible things, safety, trust in authorities, and a loss of privacy. Two, recovery is an endurance event. It's not a sprint or a marathon, but true endurance with an ebb and flow of emotions and behaviours. Three, don't parcel off the disaster. Change your mindset toward the normal business processes. Talk with and amongst your workforce about what is happening for them. Four, learn. Be open to learning from mistakes and errors. Try not to react to criticism. Five, build the skills in your leaders and workforce needed during recovery. Things like empathy, listening, communication, and skills to coordinate and connect with different agencies. That's our When the Dust Settles episode done and dusted. Please give your feedback at booksatwork.co.nz or follow Books at Work on Instagram. I'm Anna Hughes and that's Books at Work, making work better.